0: Today's TripCast is presented by the Texas A&M Engineering Extension Service and Mottie's Margarita Run. The Texas A&M University System invites nominations and applications for the position of Agency Director, Texas A&M Engineering Extension Service. More at parkersearch.com. And the Mottie's Moonlight Margarita Run and Party Benefiting the Trail Foundation is June 7th. Get your tickets today at thetrailfoundation.org. Texas
1: talking. Oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking. I ah, Gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas has are and Texas has love. Texas talking. Ah.
0: This is Bob Garrett, the new Austin bureau chief for the Dallas Morning News. I'm looking forward to competing and collaborating with my friends at the Texas Tribune during the 86th legislative session. Enjoy this week's TribCast. Now here's your host, Ross Ramsey. Thank you. This is Ross Ramsey here on Wednesday, May 23rd with your Texas Tribune TribCast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by politics editor Amon Bathija. Hello. Reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. And reporter Emma Platoff. Hi there. We'll also be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so send them our way. Uh, let's start, I guess, jump right into why we're also sleep deprived right now, uh, yesterday's runoffs. Um, we were apparently most of the people who were interested in this election. Uh, come, what's a quick rundown on, on what happened last night?
1: I got plenty of sleep, for the record.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> you were covering the governor's race, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> which ended up, and we can start right there, which ended up being a, a much closer race than I think a lot of folks expected between Lupe Valdez and, and Andrew White, the two Democratic runoff candidates for governor. Uh, it was a two-point race for most of the night, I think, and right. they ended up somewhere six points apart with Lupe Valdez right. winning. Um, but I think that you know White was viewed as the underdog heading into this. Uh, Valdez had finished far ahead of him in the first round. Uh, She had consolidated a lot of support from, institutional support I think, from uh, a lot of key Democratic constituencies. Um, There were obviously questions throughout the runoff Uh, that dogged her about kind of policy knowledge and and competency. But she did, I think, head into Election Day looking like the favorite and looking like the favorite by a healthy margin. And I think that it was a little surprising that ended up being as as close as it was.
0: You know, the sort of standard conversation on this was that she'd been elected Dallas County Sheriff four times, he'd never been on a ballot, that that alone, all other things being absent, would, would carry this through. But he did surprisingly well in Harris County. It was a it was a really big number. He did better actually in Harris County than she did in Dallas County. Mom. Right,
1: and that's that's been his base all along. Obviously, it, it's where he's from. Right, um, and he also did well in in the surrounding in the Collar counties as well, which have decent amounts of votes in them. They're not that, not that small. If you look at a place like Fort Bend County, uh-huh. um, and he also I think if you just kind of glancing at the two maps from the March six primary and the runoff. Uh, He also grew a little bit in terms of geography. His campaign had uh, targeted uh, parts of the state that also had competitive Democratic congressional runoffs. And I think you saw that pay off uh, a little bit in some areas, like Travis County, uh, where I believe he won Travis County. I I know he did an early vote. I didn't take a look at the Election Day numbers yet. He ended Um, up slightly behind, but it was only about 1,000 votes. Right. And that had been one of her strongest uh, major uh, city counties in in the first round. And so there was certainly some areas of growth just glancing at the two different maps.
2: On Harris County, it was his home base. But it was also, I wonder if just Andrew White really stressed Hurricane Harvey and not just his involvement in kind of experiencing that and helping rescue people, but you know, he, he, brought, he, brought, he brought this idea of that he can never forgive Greg Abbott for not calling a special session after Harvey. And I think that must—I I imagine that just must have resonated a lot with, her, with uh, Harris County voters.
0: Well, if you look at our map of, you know, this was uh, Valdez country and this was white country, the, the green part, the Andrew White part, um, at least on that part of the state corresponds pretty well with the Harvey map. Mm. So, you know, maybe something to that. Right.
3: But to your point, Ross, I think there are some serious enthusiasm questions, especially going into November. Uh, you said there was low turnout in this election. I believe it was the lowest turnout for a Democratic gubernatorial runoff since 1920.
0: Yeah, there's some the weird Soros things about that. But you know, you know, we haven't had that many for one thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. there, uh, <laughs> the last primary runoff before this one was 1990 between Jim Maddox and Ann Richards. For After a gubernatorial race. Dad lost the first round. Um, and. Uh, I guess 70, the 70s before that, so they're a little bit infrequent. But, yeah, point taken, you know, the, the turnout was um, really, really lousy, under 500,000 in, it looks like, the combined primaries. Um, really sort of a sad point here. What else, as, we, as you go down the ballot, um, what else stuck out? If you look at the congressional races, there weren't
1: too many surprises Uh, on both the Democratic and Republican side. Uh, If there were surprises, it was, I think, the margins, the extent to which the kind of Democratic establishment-backed candidates won in these three districts that the National Party is most intensely targeting. Right. Um, You know, all those candidates won by... Big double-digit margins. That's, that's
0: the Pete Sessions seat, the Will Hurd right. seat, and the- uh, um,
1: John Culberson John
0: seat. John Culberson seat.
1: Um, and so, uh, and then and then on the Republican side, uh, I think if there was some surprise, it was uh, that Bunny Pounds lost by a pretty healthy margin to Lance Gooden uh, in the 5th Congressional District. Uh, she had the support of the vice president. Ted Cruz at the last minute, and of course the outgoing incumbent Jeb Hensarling. Uh, you know, Gooden had always had this very strong geographic advantage because his state house district was within the congressional district, and in the runoff there was a, an additional runoff for his state house seat within right. the congressional district, and uh, and so I think he had some very strong geographic advantages. And pounds, despite all the star conservative star power in the world, wasn't able to overcome that.
0: Well, we held the call on that race for a long time. Dallas County was a little bit late coming in, and the, you know the, you know our hesitation was because you know with all of that air support, maybe Dallas County would throw her away. She did win in Dallas County in the Dallas County part of this race, but. Uh, not strongly enough to offset what he won elsewhere. So, right, kind of interesting. Um, well, and she won
2: Dallas County by
0: like seven votes or something like that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, I'm wasn't wasn't that enough. impressive, huh? It <laughs> was.
2: Uh, pa- oh, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong county. Uh, no,
0: she won. She won Dallas County 3,300 to 2,500 votes. So she won. She won by 800 or so. But, yeah. Um, Wasn't enough to offset. So, as you go down the ballot, what else did you see? There was only one, the one Senate race, the, you know, there were a bunch of congressional races, as you said, and then we got to this. House thing. Emma, you wrote about this a little bit. The, the I guess there were seven races in the House that we were watching really carefully?
3: Yeah, so there were seven GOP primary runoff races, and most of them fell along these kind of familiar battle lines. Uh, Tea Party-aligned candidates, largely backed by Empower Texans, a very well-funded group, um, versus groups that are more aligned with the current establishment in the Texas House. So Joe Strauss-backed candidates like Steve Allison. And overwhelmingly, the trend was that these more moderate candidates picked up um, in all of their races. So that kind of holds a sort of Strauss's house type uh, landscape going into 2019.
0: Um, Metzger, I guess, was the one escapee here uh, that was backed by uh, Right to Life and Empower Texans and some of those groups. Uh, She won the Republican nomination to face uh, Victoria Niave in in November. Um, Any thoughts on how these races stack up? Anything happened in the runoffs yesterday that sets up a a house race differently than you guys thought it was going to set up? Off the top of In your November, head. or yeah, just right, overall? Right.
1: I don't think so. I mean, I think there is a you know because Metzger was is viewed as more of the activist, conservative movement type candidate in that race. There are questions about. There are going to naturally be questions about her viability against Victor- a, D- a Democrat in a s- swing-type district in right. November. Right. Um, we've previously discussed that in terms of some of the Republican candidates that made it out of the primaries back in March, and so I think you know it'll be interesting to see uh, you know what her viability is like against Victoria Yave in, in that kind of district in
0: November. Okay. Any other takeaways, just off the top of your head, from the from the runoffs last night? There were only 33 races on here. <laughs> I mean, the the <laughs> national press was obsessed with the Lizzie
2: Fletcher, Laura Moser race.
0: And this is the the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee jumped into this race early and, and it's in a, in a in, and, and in a way that they
2: hadn't done you know, that much in the past. And there was a sense that th- they were doing this to see how it ha- played out because Texas had the first primary in the country and they were going to see if this worked, maybe we'll do it in other primaries. And it looks like it kind of worked. Um, it depends on, <laughs> what they're, it, it right. depends on what they kind of expected would happen. They put out an opposition. They dumped an opposition file on Laura Moser in February online. Right. And a lot of activists around the country freaked out that the DCCC would do this. And suddenly, we're like, we have to get, let's get Laura Moser to win. We, we
0: just out of like almost spite. <laughs> that was kind of a busy primary. Is that why Laura Moser got out of the primary in the first place? I mean, well, did that raised her name ID enough to. Or was, there, was this always going to be the one two in that primary?
2: I mean, the, you have there. There are there are a lot of people that think it backfired the DCCC's move, and that's how she got into the runoff. But there's also the thinking of, well, if she wasn't in contention for the runoff, why would they have gone after her? Uh, right. So it's, it's it's I mean you know it's kind of hard to say if it backfired or she would, was going to make it either way. Here's uh, a chicken. Here's an egg. Yeah, right. uh, but uh, it seems like um, you know she Laura Moser lost really bad last night. It wasn't even close. Uh, So, and it, which is just kind of remarkable because her backers nationally, but even some sets in the district were really, really enthusiastic. And, uh, you know, we, we heard from some people who just kind of, you got, it felt like overall maybe her people were more excited, but Lizzie Fletcher just seemed to run the stronger campaign and she just had a more polished campaign. Um, and it, so it, it wasn't even close. Uh, and so it does feel like this, um, Just nationally, this is going to mean perhaps the DCCC will get more involved in primaries in other states. And
1: it's worth noting, too, in this race that during the runoff period, it was largely cordial and and uneventful, despite, you know, it obviously got very red hot in those days before the primary with the national party intervening in the unusual way that it did. Um, But as our Abby Livingston wrote, Mm -hmm. I mean, there were. During the runoff period, you know, there were a number of debates and forums where they agreed on just about everything. And if they disagreed, it was on more style than substance. Right. And so uh, you know, during the runoff period, I, there just weren't that many fireworks or, uh, you know, I think, key, key uh, distinguishing
0: moments. You know, for all the noise in that race, only 17,000 people voted in that congressional district. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you come to this question in this district, in the Will Heard district, in the Pete Sessions district, are the Republicans really quaking in their boots over the over these wins or um, did they see anything to scare them last night? I think in that one race,
2: um, Culberson still is kind of the favorite to win reelection, but... There is now a race that, going to November, there, there is a chance, a decent chance there will be some national money that goes into Lizzie Fletcher's campaign, whereas Laura Moser, she might have been able to get some money too, but she wouldn't have gotten kind of that institutional backing. Uh, probably.
1: Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I think as far as the, the uh, Republicans are concerned, as they were watching these primaries play out in each three of these primaries, uh, there was a candidate who, if they had become the nominee, there would have been a question of how much financial support they would have gotten from the national party, if any. And those three people who there would have been a question for, they all lost. And so they, you know, the nominees that emerged were people who are gonna be surefire recipients of national money this fall.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just a reminder, you can shoot questions our way on social media, uh, mostly on Twitter. I think we're not on Facebook today for technical reasons. Anyway, we'll try to mix your questions in. Patrick, you were talking about how this uh, runoff looked through the lens of which endorser or which, you know— mother or father figure, uh, figured in here. How, what kind of a day did Dan Patrick have or, and Joe Strauss and Greg Abbott? How'd that lineup look?
1: Well, the, for, as far as Dan Patrick is concerned, there weren't any Senate Republican primaries, so this wasn't exactly his, his cycle to play in. He uh, obviously had a, a good first round in terms mm-hmm. of the candidates he got behind and their and their victories and and his decisive his the decisiveness of his endorsement perhaps in those victories. Uh, Joe Strauss had a, had a great night had a uh, <laughs> had a statement ready to go and out before a lot of these races were even right. called. Um, what do you say, so common sense conservatives? Was, was I it? think responsible Republicans right. is his his label. Um, you know, I think most importantly, uh, that wing of the party held on to both Strauss' seat in House District 121 in the San Antonio right. area, and they held on to Byron Cook's seat uh, farther north, um, and they fended off these, these Empower Texas uh, right-to-life-backed challengers. Right. And so, I mean, I think it was a pretty successful night for them on,
0: on the whole. hmm Governor? Uh, he sort of got involved in a couple of races. Oh, Abbott! Yeah, that's <laughs> the governor's race. I was like, I don't think. <laughs> I don't think those like, guys endorsed the Democratic
1: primary. <laughs> um, yeah, like, so, yeah, who
2: was Dan Patrick supporting? Right. Andrew White, Lupe Valdez. <laughs> 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 yeah, well,
1: Abbott has effectively in, in the primary effectively endorsed uh, Lupe. Uh, so <laughs> he kind of did. Way, but, yeah, we'll come to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Um, but Abbott, in these runoffs, uh, he had, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to remember right now, he had endorsed Thomas McNutt, as right. did Ted Cruz and, and Rick Perry. Thomas McNutt lost. He lost McNutt to Cody lost. Harris in the,
0: in the Byron Cook seat.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so this wasn't as, I think, consequential of a, a round for uh, Abbott's political clout as the first round was, in which, right. as we all so vividly recall, he got involved in those three challenger races and walked away with one win.
0: Right. And then Ted Cruz split, right? He got Chip Roy through. Um, Bunny Pounds, not so much.
1: Yeah, he got Ron right through. Um, McNutt lost. Uh, Stuart Spitzer lost. A little, a mixed bag for Ted Cruz, I'd say, uh-huh. it, it, uh, on this particular round. Yeah. Right.
0: Anybody have a straight up bad night, other than Empower Texans and and those guys? Texas Right to Life and Empower Texans, I guess, did. But yeah. in terms of uh, political figures, they were all kind of mixed or or good.
1: Yeah, I would say if you go if you dig a little deeper within that that category of Empower Texans slash Texas Right to Life, uh, candidates who previously ran uh for these seats had a bad night. <laughs> if ah. you look at Matt Beebe, Thomas mm. McNutt, Stuart Spitzer. Oh that's interesting. Uh, These there was clearly some kind of exhaustion with these candidates coming back for a second or third bite at the apple. Um, I mean there were an, there, uh, you know overwhelmingly the, the kind of also ran candidates lost last night.
0: Mm-hmm. Um bad at least on the Republican for, side. Bad road for retreads maybe. Um, Before our next topic, I'd like to thank another TripCast sponsor, Citizens Against Laredo Landfill. A developer wants to build a toxic dump near Laredo. Tens of thousands oppose it. Learn about this fight at nolaredodump.com. Let's talk about the general elections and how they set up and start at the top of the ballot. Um, The sort of the marquee race in a gubernatorial year is often the governor's race, but this year it looks more like the U.S. Senate race. And the governor's race looks... um, Asymmetrical, let's say. Ramon, you want to? <laughs> s- I mean, talk about how the ballot looks. Yeah, I mean, I think it Democrats.
2: All the enthusiasm is behind Pedro O'Rourke. Uh, his his campaigns. You know, traveling this. He's he's been traveling around the state to a lot of places that uh, Democrats would normally go and drawing decent crowds. And I think he's not far off from doing having done all 254 counties. Um, which in Iowa is called the Full Grassley. I don't think there's a word for it in it's
1: Texas. It's called a what? It's called the Full Grassley doing all 99 counties in, in Iowa. I don't know if wow. there's a word for that in so, Texas. Wow. <laughs> Maximum the Beto award. or something, yeah. The full <laughs> Beto? Yeah, that sounds a little better.
0: We'll get
2: to work on <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> um, you know, the governor's race, I think there was some, you know, they, they struggled for like over a year trying to find a decent candidate. And when uh, Lupe Valdez announced she was running, there was this kind of initial excitement, but as she went on the campaign trail, um, that kind of <laughs> dissipated just, just <laughs> right, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, just cause uh, there were times when she wasn't uh, prepared and uh, times when she just made odd statements. And, uh, but ne- also, you know, she's uh, her resume and just kind of her background as a, you know, former sheriff, gay Latina. Her uh,
0: resume kind of over, overcame her performance.
2: Yeah. And uh, I, it does make me, you know, there, were, there were, has been some national headlines today about her candidacy and the historicness of it. And it does make me wonder if that will draw some excitement over the next few months or as we get closer to November. But on the same time, you know, Abbott has something like $40 million
0: to spend and Lupe Valdez will have nowhere near that. Patrick, you alluded to Abbott campaigning on her behalf. What's that about?
1: Right. I mean, throughout this runoff period, I don't think it happened in the primary, but he released a number of kind of salvos at her, attacking her over her positions on immigration and abortion, if, if I recall correctly. And even before she took the stage last night to give her an uh, acceptance speech, nomination acceptance speech, he is, his campaign had a video out uh, kind of recapping some of her stumbles that she had during the primary, including her backtracking on whether she'd be open to raising taxes as governor. And yeah, um, Evan Smith got know, a cameo. Right. No <laughs> exactly. Um, and so they've been very eager to uh, paint that contrast early on. And, and by doing that, they've elevated her in some ways.
0: Well, before and, the before the runoff, they were emphasizing things that were probably attractive to liberal Democrats. You know, they were knocking right. her for being a liberal. Oh, well, yeah. Well, they were, know, yeah. ostensibly to a Republican audience. <laughs> well, yeah. sort they of they, the they were criticizing her
1: during the runoff as too liberal for Texas. Right. Which probably plays well among actual liberals right. if the Republican governor is attacking it as too liberal for Texas. Yeah. Pretty so funny. Funny. Um, obviously there is some fun uh, witchcraft.
0: Uh, in so what there. do you guys think this pretends for candidates down ballot? You know, Mike Collier's is running against Dan Patrick. Justin Nelson's running against Ken Paxton and so on down the ballot. Does the top of the ticket give those candidates comfort or cause for concern? Or um, I know we're early in this and haven't, haven't thought about it a ton, but this doesn't look at this moment not necessarily that it would like a unified ticket.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think looking at Lupe Valdez, uh, you know, for these other candidates, it's a two-sided coin still for them. I mean, they are holding out hope that she can galvanize a part of the, the, the electorate in Texas that hasn't traditionally shown right. up in big numbers. Uh, but on the other side of the coin, they've watched how this primary has unfolded, and they certainly have the same, you know, uh, questions and, and worries about how she's going to perform on the campaign trail that, other, that some other Democrats do. And so I think the, you know, the, the onus is on her to, to prove herself now that she's going to be an asset for them.
0: Is the O'Rourke campaign sort of a one-off, you know, kind of running all by itself, or is that, like, a team leader campaign?
3: Well, Lupe has made the point that she could help uh, Beto in areas where he's been weakest. I mean, I think he kind of underperformed in some of the border counties with Hispanic right. voters in, right. the, in the March 6th primary, and she said, you know, this is an area where maybe I could help you. So that's that remains to be seen, I think, whether they can kind of... It was of a op- weird
0: thing to say out loud. <laughs> it,
3: it was <laughs> another weird thing to say by Lupe. Samuel Rodriguez but ran
0: <laughs> against him along with Ed Kilgore in the first round, and um, I don't remember the number. He got 64%? Um, Beto
3: was in the 60s, Hernandez picked up maybe 14%. A lot of it concentrated in border counties.
0: Yeah.
1: It's going to be fascinating to see, as we get into the thick of this general election, how helpful O'Rourke is willing to be for the rest of the statewide Democratic ticket. not that he hasn't been helpful so far, but he's, you know, he was not recruited to run for U.S. Senate by the state party. <laughs> he right. kind of did this on his own. And and so far, he's been running this campaign that is kind of prideful uh, in its independence from political conventions, including the traditional ties that a statewide candidate would have to the state party. And so, again, not suggesting that he hasn't been helpful, per se, uh, but it's really when you get into the thick of the general election, when you see uh, how, you know, how much assistance this, the top of the ticket wants to provide to the rest of the people on the ticket and how helpful they want to be or whether they just want to focus on their own campaign.
2: What's also interesting is we have not really seen Ted Cruz's attack on Beto O'Rourke or, like, his effort to— I mean, beyond right. just saying he's too liberal right. for Texas, there hasn't really been a cohesive push, on, you know, attack on Beto O'Rourke. And a lot of the state doesn't know much about him, and they know a lot about Ted Cruz. Well,
0: that's, that's the polling hole in uh, Beto O'Rourke's numbers. He's generally— left a positive impression on people, but there's a large number of Texans who don't have an impression yet, and that's an opportunity to explain yourself, but it's also an opportunity for Cruz to explain the opponent before he does. And it really that's going to happen somewhat soon. Right. Uh, that, the beginning of that, anyway. Right, right. Yeah, coming soon to a television set <laughs> uh, near you. Um, I want to play a very quick game of Let's Name the Republicans. There's a bunch of conversation about <laughs> what do you call each kind of Republican. you know, the Everybody in the Republican Party wants to be called conservatives. Apparently nobody, judging from my morning email, apparently nobody wants to be called moderate. Um, this is specifically <laughs> in the legislature, I'd have to say. And not in Congress. Yeah, we did not see this dynamic in the congressional
2: runoffs, really. That's,
0: that's true, actually.
2: So there was um, very little daylight between the congressional candidates.
0: <laughs> anybody got good names for these guys? Uh, pinheads? <laughs> <laughs>
2: the, I, I've, I've, You know, I've gotten some of these complaints, too, as political editor, and I've asked people, like, give me another word other than moderates, and I haven't gotten a good answer. (laughs) Um, So, but, you know, when you—politics of the spectrum, liberal, moderate, conservative, that's a very easy to understand spectrum. Uh, If you get rid of the word moderate, then how do you define people on the right in Republicans? Yeah. Just just according to their mail. Being as
1: objective as possible, I think it's helpful just to follow the money and see where the bulk of these people's funding is coming from in some ways. And that, you know... On one side, you have, uh, you know, Empowered Texans and Texas Right to Life, which are being funded by and large by some very ideologically driven donors who are willing to write huge checks in, in one sitting. Um, you know, there's obviously, they're concentrated in the oil and gas industry, but not exclusively. Some of them are clearly in West Texas. <laughs> it right. has become almost like a, a boogeyman in some, in some ads on the other side that I, I heard the cycle.
0: I'm, I'm um, from West Texas. I'm a little <laughs> sensitive about this. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> and so, and then on the other side, you have groups like Associated Republicans of Texas, mm-hmm. and you have. Uh, the House Leadership Fund, and those are being funded Generously, in some cases not as generously, but still generously by some, some more business minded uh, donors. And of course, as the, the name House Leadership Fund implies, House Leadership. On the most recent campaign finance report, Joe Strauss was the majority, made up the majority of contributions reported by both Associated Republicans of Texas right. and the House Leadership Fund. And he, uh, you know, no one shied away from that. He put out a news release touting how much he had given to those groups this cycle. And so I think that's helpful in terms of considering, you know, uh, where these people, at least, kind of what their political orientation is—it's mm-hmm. um, sometimes a little more complicated and thorny, as, as we just talked about, to go from that to affixing a ideological label. I right. did—I
2: did hear someone <laughs> suggest to me that uh, moderates should be called conservatives, and those to the right of them should be called far right. And I did make confuse me
0: because then I was like, it, "Does a moderate even exist? How do you even define that?" I guess it's a fight between you know, sort of a branding exercise and a. And a in a description exercise. Yeah. <laughs> we'll figure it out along the way. I want to close with the big news of last week that has come into this week. This is the shootings in Santa Fe at the high school there and at the um, political and policy aftermath. The governor, Emma, has started these um, roundtables and um, made noises like something of some kind, some kind of public policy change may come out of this that hasn't come out of previous shootings. Could you talk us through through this a little bit?
3: Yeah, on Friday, there was a school shooting at Santa Fe High School. It's about 30 miles south of Houston. Um, 10 people were killed, most of them students, 13 injured. The big question out of these is always, you know, are guns going to be on the table after this? And there's been reporting kind of on both sides. I don't think we've seen any clear indications that Greg Abbott, who's obviously a lifetime member of the NRA, has probably uh, touted that status, is willing to take up serious gun control issues. There are kind of other issues that are being explored this week at a series of roundtables talking about mental health, um, school safety. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick kind of famously mentioned the uh, that there are too many entrances and exits. At, of schools We're the of using the adverb
2: famously. <laughs> yeah.
3: Gotten a, a fair amount of flack for that, primarily from, you know, fire safety advocates. Uh, But I kind of think everything's on the table, and it's just not clear yet what will actually get picked up.
0: What's, you know, what's new that's on the table? I mean, you know, we've had this conversation. I mean, there's a rhetorical conversation that everybody's familiar with after, after these shootings. And there's a regular piece of that that's about, you know, gun regulation. There's another piece of that that's around mental health. To some extent, the, the security of the schools is a little bit new, but you know has been around for a while. What feels new here? At, after yesterday's roundtable, uh, this was roundtable number two of three. No, number one. Number well, one of two of three. In, right. the number one of three
2: Yes, today's right. is number two of three. Uh, yesterday's, uh, Greg Abbott said something about um, why don't parents have access to an app that lets them immediately look at school security footage live in schools? Which I had never heard that idea before. Like a crib monitor, right? And just um, beyond, you know, the value of that. What what ex- Beyond like, you know, what is a parent supposed to do? That's also you know, schools are really big, and they're going to look at like 50 cameras, right? But um, also just the expense of that, and just a lot of the ideas that have been talked about relating to school security sound incredibly expensive, and also something that perhaps you would not be able to like uh, implement across a lot of the state. You may be able to only do it in some of the urban areas or some of the more you know, or maybe some of the more rural areas because those schools are smaller. Right. Either way, just not something that can, you know,
0: you can, that would work across all the state. Is is there a political ground shift here? I mean, you know, we've, you know, given, you know, we had a shooting in Sutherland Springs about six months ago and got the reaction then that we got. Here we are at this, this is post-Parkland with a lot of activism around it. And we've had this shooting and they seem to be trying to be more responsive in whatever way, whether it results in policy, at least they're they're trying to respond to it in a way that says uh, suggests that they're doing something. What's i, mean, the I think
1: Politicians, shift? absolutely, even in a red state, feel a heightened sense of pressure after these shootings to do something, anything. And we could have a debate all day about the merit of what they are doing, about whether you know these roundtables are going right. to lead to anything meaningful, whether they're meaningful in the moment. But I think there's. Absolutely. Politicians across the country absolutely are feeling a a heightened sense of urgency after these shootings. And again, we can debate the merit. I think on these roundtables, it's going to be fascinating what comes out of them, actually. I don't know if the governor has actually detailed this. Um, You know, is it going to require a special, or you know, are there going to be proposals that require a special session to implement or something like that? Um, You know, uh, maybe the governor's already talked about that. Obviously, I was a little busy with the elections yesterday. But I'm just fascinated to see what happens when these roundtables end on Thursday and where we go from there.
0: sort of wonder if there's a fuse on this in terms of the next school year and whether they're trying to put something in place before, you know, late August, early September when schools start, as opposed to waiting for the legislative session in January. And, and you know, um, if the politics have changed enough for any of the players across the spectrum in this issue to change their position or move a little bit.
2: That is the timing aspect is interesting here, because after Hurricane Harvey, Abbott drew a lot of attention for saying we don't need a special session to address that because, you know, there's going to be federal money and there's going to be a lot of money to spend and we can address stuff better after we know kind of how all that money is being used over the next year. This school shooting issue is different in that if you wait till the next session, that means you go through all of the next school year without addressing this issue. Uh, So if you, if the only way to properly address it before the next school year is if abbott somehow works, you know, unilaterally within his powers as governor or there's a special session this summer.
3: And and I think we you know we often hear Democrats asking Greg Abbott to call a special session for you know a laundry list of issues. I think what we've seen after this is a, at least some powerful House Republicans. Byron Cook comes to mind, mm-hmm. saying we really do need action on this issue. Like Amon said before the school year starts in August,
0: right? And I guess before the November election as well. Yeah, That's I, right. <laughs> you
1: know, I don't know how, how persuasive Byron Cook's going to be on, on Greg Abbott. At any <laughs> he's lame. He's, to he's be quite, a lame, lame duck, sort of. You know. uh, but I do I did want to note that I think yesterday uh, Phil. Pratt with KXAN, asked Abbott if he was willing to call a special session. He didn't immediately rule it out in the same way that he did after Harvey. Mm. Who knows how much to read into that? Um, you know, but I, I think told Phil something like right now, you know, it's a question about process right now. We're focused on substance. Let's get through these roundtables, And that brings back to my question is what happens after
0: Thursday. Okay. Let's uh, leave it there. That's all the time we have. If you like listening to the Tribcast every week, we hope you'll try our audio news brief, which shows up every morning on your Amazon Alexa smart speaker or podcast player. Search for Texas Tribune brief on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to the Texas A&M Engineering Extension Service, to Mādi's Margarita Run and Citizens Against Laredo Landfill, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Amon, Patrick, and Emma, and our producers Todd and Bobby, this is Ross. Thanks for listening.
2: Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking.